death is no longer final. That's the difference. So the fangs of death are still intact, but the finality of death has been removed. Death, where is your sting? You can't hold God down. Uh, Matthew 26 and Luke 22 is where we are. This is part two of a collection of messages we're calling Death, Where Is Your Sting? And we're just taking seven weeks to remind the devil that he couldn't kill Jesus, right? He, he might have he gotten him up there on that cross, but he couldn't keep him in that tomb. And we're just going to remind him and remind ourselves that our hope is alive. And we're thankful for that. And so really what this is is kind of a journey uh, following Jesus's footsteps leading up to the crucifixion, preparing our hearts for the resurrection. And, um, you know, we're talking about this, this verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul is quoting from the Old Testament. And he just says, death, where is your sting? And I know being uh, humans, we've all been stung by something, bitten by something, I imagine at some point in your life. For me, the most memorable um, and, and uh, excuse what I need to tell you here, but I, I was stung by a bee in the butt when I was about six years old. Um, it was uh, on a field trip, and uh, it was still in the place, still in the time of my life where it was cool to have your mom on the field trip with you. What was not cool was when my mom had to take me on the school bus by myself and yank the stinger out <laughs> of my butt. That was not not cool, not cool at all, uh, but very memorable and very painful. I can think of times where I've gotten stung in the back of my head by wasps, or maybe you've been bitten by a dog. I've been bitten by a dog. I was thinking back, a dog, a turtle, and a spider are the things that I can think of because uh, I accidentally caught a turtle in a pond, and I was just trying to help the guy, and it bit me. Come on. So I had turtle soup. No, I'm kidding. I didn't. Um, so when, when you get stung, there's, there's this pain that goes with it. And sometimes what's interesting is that it's not the initial sting that's the worst, but sometimes there's further pain. It, it actually gets worse before it gets any better. And that's actually kind of where we find ourselves in this series. This is just a couple weeks in, and today I'll kind of let you know where we are. But last week we talked about the upper room and as we're asking this question throughout this series, death, where is your sting? I need you to know that over the coming weeks, we're going to start feeling the sting of, of death and sin more and more. In fact, like a sting often does, it's for us going to get a lot worse before it gets any better. It's going to get a lot more brutal before finally there looks like there's some hope. Um, and, and that's just, unfortunately, the reality of, of oftentimes the way that it works. It gets worse before it gets better. And here, but here's the cool thing. Genesis chapter 3 gave us, it's the first chapter in the Bible where perfection has been ruined. And yet God stepped into the middle of the mess that Adam and Eve has just created. And he gave them a promise. And he said, I'm going to fix it. Genesis 3 verse 15. He said that the seed of the woman... The offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. So as we ask this question, death, where is your sting? It's not that death is not painful. We understand, especially if you've dealt with death, death is still very painful. But it's just that death is no longer final. That's the difference. 
So the fangs of death are still intact, but the finality of death has been removed. Death, where is your sting? You can't hold God down. Amen? So we're celebrating this truth from Matthew 26, Luke 22 today, kind of journeying through the Gospels. And today, Jesus with the disciples, 11 of them, Judas has gone off to sell Jesus and betray him. But the 11 remaining disciples go with Jesus into the Garden of Gethsemane. And, uh, and, and it's a heartbreaking, brutal scene as Jesus is, is opening his heart, kind of sharing his heart with the Father in prayer. And he's literally pouring himself out. Jesus, who is normally strong and collected, is heartbroken and desperate. We see him in, in some of the most vulnerable ways that we, that we ever see him in the Gospels. And so today I'm calling this message, if you want to write a message title down, Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Those are literally things that Jesus pours out in the garden as he prepares for what he knows is coming. Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Matthew chapter 26 Let's read the first few uh, verses, starting in verse 30. When they had sung a hymn, remember we're coming from the upper room, the Last Supper, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. I love this about Jesus because when he talks about his death, he always talks about his resurrection as well. Because death isn't final. It's painful, but it's not final. He goes, it's okay. We're going to hang out in, in, right after in Galilee. He's looking ahead. Peter answered him. Verse 33. Watch Peter. Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Peter boasts. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Let me give you a few things to take home today. Number one, write this down. When, when we overestimate our strength, we underestimate the battle. This, this is problematic for all of us. We all have a tendency to do this. In fact, I'm going to argue today that oftentimes it's because we overestimate our own strength that we are not quick to pray for the strength that we actually need. This is why Jesus was so strong when he faced pain and why Peter failed when he faced pain and, and pressure and, and temptation. When we overestimate our strength, we underestimate the value. Let me ask you a question. Um, when you go to a zoo, you're going to find that the lions and the tigers and the bears are, yeah, I knew you were going to say it, are in cages. Let me ask you why. why. Why do we keep them in an enclosure? Well, because we want to live another day, right? We'd rather eat breakfast and not be eaten for breakfast. Simple answer, why do we keep a lion locked up? Healthy fear. That's why. Well, why, why do we install seatbelts and airbags in cars? Healthy fear. We know that if there's an accident, something bad could take place unless we're protected. So let me, let me ask another question. Why should we remain humble and honest and accountable when it comes to our tendency to sin? Healthy fear. 
And see, here's what we have to learn from Peter right here in Matthew chapter 26. We got to learn Peter, what he did right here was he used one of the most dangerous phrases when it comes to sin. Here's the phrase he used. I will never. This is one of the most dangerous phrases you can use when it comes to temptation and sin. Because this phrase, I will never, here's what it is. It's self-deceiving and it's sin-empowering. No, no, I don't do that. I will never fall in that area. No, I'm not like that. I used to do that. That's not who I am anymore. I don't do that. Other people struggle with that, not me. I will never. Peter said, if everybody does, I won't. I will never. So we, we need to learn from Peter and our own tendency to do the exact same thing. Because as much as we like to rag on Peter, he's an easy target. We got to understand that we, are te- we, we have the tendency, we are prone to do the exact same thing and say, I will never do whatever that thing is. So could I just give you a two-part strategy when it comes to this? Here's what we do. We have a two-part strategy when it comes to dealing with sin and our, our own tendency to cave when temptation comes around. Two things I'll tell you you do. First of all, you pray like it could happen. You just have the humility to own up, God, please preserve me from that. God, I, 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 don't, I never want to do that, but I know There's some wickedness in my heart that hasn't been worked out entirely until I get to heaven. It won't be, so God guard me. You pray with the humility to know that it's possible, and then you live in a way that makes it virtually impossible. That's our two-part strategy. Pray like it's possible, knowing that it's possible. Number two, live so that it's virtually impossible. Romans 13 says, make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. In other words, make it hard to sin. You know why sometimes it's so easy to fall into temptation? Because you're tempting yourself. You're flirting with the line. How close can I go and still feel okay about myself? No wonder we fail so easily. So you pray like it's possible, knowing it's possible, And then you live making it virtually impossible. I think Peter and Paul, we know later on in the book of Acts that they got to know each other. I wish they would have known each other earlier. And I wish Paul would have had the words for Peter that he gave to the Corinthian church years later. I want to read a text from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Um, This is what Paul writes later on in the book book of uh, 1 Corinthians. along this topic. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 actually gives us a few verses of, it details some of Israel's sins in the Old Testament. Things like idolatry, sexual immorality, testing God, even complaining against God. These are all things that it says in 1 Corinthians 10 that the nation of Israel did. But watch what Peter writes. I'm sorry, sorry, uh, Paul writes. He says, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 Uh, Verse 11, now these things, talking about idolatry, sexual immorality, testing God, complaining, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Here's what Paul is saying. Don't buy into the lie. I guarantee you've heard somebody say this. I got to make my own mistakes. Don't buy into this lie. Listen, all of the mistakes have been made. Learn from them, okay? You don't, you don't need to go out and make your, oh, well, I'm a, I just, I learned the hard way. 
I got to go out and live my life and make my own mistakes. You don't have to. Listen, the sins of, of former generations were written down for our instruction so we can learn from them so you don't have to do the, the same things that they did. Don't, don't buy into this lie. I got to go make all my own mistakes. No, you don't. Learn from somebody who walked down that path. You see some tendencies in your own life. Man, I see some failures in my life. Go find somebody who's walked down that road and say, how do I guard myself from going down that way? You know what we have? Jen and I have been married uh, for 14 years now. And anytime we get around a couple who's been married for longer than us, you know what we do? We ask questions. How do we make sure that we're there in 25 years and 30 years and 50 years? What kind of things can we put into place? Because I'm not going to buy into the lie that because divorce plagued my family, that's just where we're headed. I don't have to go out and make my own mistakes. They've all been made. I'm going to learn from them. So don't say the phrase, I will never. Instead, learn from other people's mistakes. Now, uh, Paul goes on. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands, <clears throat> Peter, take heed lest he fall. We got to learn from Peter. The moment you think you stand, I've got that beat. I don't do that. That's not me. I will never let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. Verse 13. Paul goes on, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. I love this. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So here's what this tells us. Since a way of escape exists, that should tell you right there, you need to be taking the way of escape. And that should tell you that we clearly have not beaten sin if there is a way of escape. Right there, that tells you that our own, our, our own nature is to go against what we know to be right. Never underestimate the wickedness in your own heart. The moment you start using the phrase, I will never, watch out. Jesus says, I don't want you to, but, but listen, Peter, tonight actually... Before the rooster crows three times, you're going to do the thing that you said you would never do. Be careful with the phrase, I will never. Be careful with this. I like to call it the I've arrived syndrome. I beat that. That's not me. I don't need accountability in that area anymore. I don't do that. I will never. Well, I hope not. But let's not, let's not overestimate our own strength because then we underestimate the, the battle. So... Now, now, those are kind of like the parting words from the upper room. This is a sad way to go into the garden to pray. But this Jesus is just, he's always honest. So they're walking out of the upper room. If you ever get a chance to tour uh, Jerusalem, an old city, it's just unbelievable. It'll make all of this come to life. Um, they leave the upper room, which is near uh, the, the western wall, what we would call today the wailing wall. Um, in, that, in that general vicinity in the old city, you would walk out and down into the Kidron Valley and up the Mount of Olives to this place called the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane means, interestingly enough, oil press. And it's the place where Jesus would be pressed and crushed spiritually 
in preparation for being crushed physically. Garden of Gethsemane is a grove of olive trees. And, and, and the pressing would begin in this moment, in these next few hours for Jesus as he was preparing himself. Now, let's just get out of our minds. If you were here last week, we saw a famous painting of the upper room, and I said, get that out of your mind, right? I need to get another one out of your mind. Here's a, a common picture of Jesus in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Get that posed Jesus Trimmed beard, feathered hair out of your head. Get that out of your head. Jesus did not brush his hair lightly before he got to the Garden of Gethsemane that night. He did not stop at Holiday Barbershop before he got into the garden. He certainly didn't say, how's this angle? Do I look good right now while I'm praying? And I don't think his face was glowing like that. This is not accurate, okay? Jesus was in agony in, in these moments. Um, let's get a, a more accurate picture of what the Garden of Gethsemane was like. This is a picture that I took uh, two years ago when we went to the Garden. This, of course, is during the day. But what's interesting about the Garden of Gethsemane is the vantage point. So the Garden of Gethsemane is about three or 400 feet up on the side of the Mount of Olives. And you can actually overlook the old city, Jerusalem, even at night, uh, I would have put a picture up from, from at night, but it just, I was a terrible photographer and it doesn't look good. So I wanted you to be able to see the slope that it's on, the grass that they would have knelt in. This is literally a picture of the spot that Jesus would have been in with his disciples. Olive trees all around. And so as he overlooked the city, he began to just weep, pour out his heart. He's normally strong and, and, and collected under, under pain, and now things are, are looking really bad. If you're in Luke chapter 22, I want to give you Luke's take on what this scene looked like, um, because this is literally where blood, sweat, and tears begin to pour from our Savior. Luke 22, look at verse 39. It says, he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. So not far, he walked a little bit away and he knelt down and prayed saying, Father, if you're willing, which by the way, you may want to underline those words. That is the key to the success of his prayer. And it can be the key to the success of our prayers. If you are willing Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in, an, in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, just in case you think Luke is being a little dramatic here, can I just remind you that Luke was a medical doctor? He's not exaggerating here. Um, this is an actual physical thing that can take place. It's called hematidrosis. And it's where the blood capillaries that feed the sweat glands burst out of intense anguish and stress. And they literally, blood begins to seep out of the pores with sweat. 
is literally in the garden on his face in agony, not only crying, but sweating. And now if he were to look up, his face is already bloody just from the stress and the mental anguish that he is under right now. I need you to understand something about this battle. Here's number two. Would you write this down? Gaining control comes from surrendering control. And, and I, I say that because you have, to, you have to understand this is the opposite of what we normally think. When we typically think of gaining, um, when we talk about gaining victory, we typically think of gaining control. But this is different in, in the garden. We see here that gaining victory comes from surrendering control. Now with uh, sports or games, it, it works differently, right? Like if the football team, the football team that wins is probably the football team that gained the most control of the ball. The skier that wins in the Olympics is probably the skier who gained the most control of their skis in the race course. The, the player, uh, the, the Monopoly player who won is probably the person who gained the most control over the board and then went, booyah, right? Like, wrecked the board. Maybe you flipped the board. I don't know, because they gained more control. But typically, if we're going to gain victory, it's because we gained control. But this is different with Jesus. See, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way when it comes to prayer. Jesus, now had you stumbled onto this scene and saw Jesus in prayer, victory is not the word that would have come to your mind. Defeat would have come to your mind. Who is this and what is wrong with him? He's bleeding and sweating and crying and on his face. Somebody clean that guy up. This was, this was not a scene that looked like victory which is a precursor to a scene we're going to see in the coming weeks that looked far from victory. But see, gaining victory spiritually comes from letting go, surrendering control. Here he is in, in agony, and he's just, he's praying, and he's crying, and he's weeping. And yet, although he's in agony, you got to understand that his words are securing the victory. Look at, look at his prayer. He said in, in verse 42, not my will, but yours be done. This is, this is it right here. This is the key. Not my will, but yours be done. Now, what struck me this week was this garden scene reminds me of another garden scene from a few thousand years prior. There was another garden that you might remember in the very beginning of the Bible. In the Garden of Eden, Adam effectively told God, not your will, but mine be done. And he took of the fruit, the one thing that they had been told not to do, and he ate, and it brought devastation on mankind. Jesus now, a few thousand years removed, in another garden, said, not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus, by reversing the phrase, reversed the curse of sin. He switched it all up because he said, I'm not going to focus on what I want, but Father, I'm going to stay focused on what you want. See, Adam's grab for control brought defeat, but Jesus' surrender brought the victory. Let me tell you this. If you want to win a battle in prayer, I've got four words for you. Would you write these four words down? If you want to win a battle in prayer, here's your four words. Your will not mine. 
Did you write those down? Come on. Your will, not mine. Whatever it is that you're praying over, whatever season you're facing, whatever trouble you're dealing with, if you will become acquainted with those words, I'm telling you, this is where the victory is won. I, got, I, just, I just got off the phone with my doctor and there's a diagnosis that I was not prepared for. Four words, your will, not mine, right? I don't know what my future holds. God, your will, not mine. My marriage is really hurting. This relationship that I wanted to see happen is not happening like I thought. Your will, not mine. My finances, your will, not mine. My kids, your will, not mine. Do you see what happens? When we stop focusing on my plan and we start putting our allegiance back on the Father, God, this is what I want, but it's not about what I want. God, would you use even the most devastating circumstances in my life to accomplish what you want to do. Your will, not mine. That, this, is where the victory is won. See, Jesus, what's amazing to me, Jesus wanted out of the suffering. Listen, if you've ever wanted, if you've ever prayed to God, for God to get you out of suffering, you are in good company. Jesus prayed the same thing. It's okay to tell God that you're fearful of what is up and coming, that you don't want to go through with it. It's okay, as long as you've got that phrase in there, your will, not mine. God, this is going to hurt. God, I'm not prepared. God, I don't think I can handle this. God, this isn't according to plans, but your will, not mine. This is what Jesus said. Whatever you are facing, this is, this is how we pray. Now, Jesus wanted out, but what's interesting is that Luke tells us instead of God removing the cup from him, he sent an angel to strengthen Jesus to drink the cup of suffering. Why? Because God always answers our prayers, but often in ways that we didn't think he would answer them in. Because prayer is less about us getting answers from God and more about us getting strength from God to take on whatever we have to face. And so this is, a, this is where the battle is won. Because, see, we, we view surrender as defeat, but it's not. Spiritually speaking, surrender is the pathway to victory. In fact, I would argue this, that the battle of Golgotha, Skull Hill where Jesus was crucified, the battle of Golgotha was clinched in the Garden of Gethsemane. We saw the victory on the cross in the empty tomb, but it was won in the garden when Jesus said, I will face it, not my will, but yours be done. Flip back to Matthew chapter 26. Write this one down. Here's number three. Power for the trial comes from persevering in prayer. Let's get Matthew's take on this scene. Verse 36, Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to the disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, would you let this cup pass from me? Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples, and look at this. He found him sleeping. And he said to Peter, 
could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Is not the truth. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again, same repetitious prayer. God, please, I don't want to take this cup. But if that's your will, then I'll drink it. Verse 45, he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour's at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The thing that stands out to me here is a shift in Jesus' posture. Look at this here. Um, Verse 39. It says, going a little farther, he fell on his face. This is where Luke 22 tells us he began praying and, and drops of blood were coming out with the sweat. He's on his face, bleeding and sweating and crying. And then look down in verse 46. He's standing up and he says confidently, rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. He goes, I'm ready to face what's coming. So here's my question. What happened in those eight verses to change his confidence and his posture in this way? Like, I don't have to be there to see and to sense the change, the shift in confidence that we go from verse 39 of him on his face to verse 46, rise, I'm ready to face it. What happened? I got to know what happened because there are times where I face things that I don't know how I'm going to make it through and I need this same resolve. Here's what happened. While the disciples slept hard, Jesus prayed hard. I'm not here to diss on sleep. We all love our sleep. Sleep is good. God said take a whole day off every week, right? It's one of the commandments. Come on, can we thank God for that that commandment, right? Some of us need to follow that through even a little bit more. Some a little bit less, but you you know who you are. You're like, I thought we were supposed to work one day and take six off. No, you got that reversed. We need rest. There's nothing wrong with rest. Sleep is a good, it's a good thing. It's a, it's a natural thing. But here's the problem. Could it be that our hearts are so hard that it leads our eyes to be heavy? What I mean by that is, could it be that we've overestimated our strength Therefore, underestimating the battle and underestimating my need to even take a little bit longer and pray, wake up a little bit earlier and pray, stay up a little bit later and pray. Could it be that our hearts are so hard that it's led to our eyes being a little extra heavy? And here's the problem with that. When our eyes are too heavy to pray, we walk into battle unprepared. This is what happened with the disciples. Why did they all run? We'll see this next week. Why? Because they were unprepared going into battle. Why could Jesus go from on his face sweating and bleeding and crying to standing confidently and taking what was coming? Because while they slept, he prayed. Because he knew his need for strength from the Father. If it ever feels to you like, a, like it's a battle to pray, that's because it is. 
See, prayer is a battle that gives you strength for the battle that you'll face. And so often we walk straight into battle, completely unarmed, not ready for anything that the devil's going to throw at us. And I want to encourage you with this truth, that if you're ever going to rise to face the pain that's coming at you, you may know it by name or you may not, but if you will ever be able to rise and take and, and, and survive and conquer the pain that is coming at you, it will start by you spending time kneeling in prayer and asking God for the strength for what you're about to face. For you to ever make it through what's in front of you, it starts with the power of prayer. Now, this is a brutal scene. And like I said, um, in the coming weeks, it's only going to get more brutal. It gets worse before it gets better. Death, where is your sting? We're asking that question, but the reality is we're feeling the sting pretty close here. But I want to flash back to something that's just like a quick mention that if you don't slow down, like we all need to learn to do in our Bibles sometimes, if you don't slow down, you'll miss it. But there's so much strength in it. Watch this. Would you flash back to Matthew 26, verse 30? Just a quick mention. Matthew says this. When they had sung a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives. I read that, I'm like, what were they singing? I want to know, like, first of all, how good of a singer was Jesus, right? Like, obviously, as God, he's the best singer ever. But I'm kind of thinking, like, as a carpenter, probably not that good of a singer, right? I imagine I'm probably up there with Jesus' singing voice. I don't know. I'm not boasting. I'm just saying I don't know how great of a singer he was, but here's 11 of the disciples in Jesus, and they're all, I imagine, come on, these are fishermen, these are tax collectors, a carpenter. Can you imagine the choir? Can you imagine their voices all in harmony trying to sing the same? Okay, let's start over. Not that note. No, that one's wrong. All right, just everybody as loud as you can so we don't hear each other, right? Like, have you ever been in a room where, where everybody's singing happy birthday and you were like, this is a disaster? Okay, so I don't know, like Peter's over there like pulling a, a Fergie national anthem thing, like, like just letting loose, okay? And here's Jesus, and they're, they're about to go into the garden, and it says they sung a hymn. Now, I just, I, I'm just like, what are they singing? I wonder what they're singing. So I found out it's customary at the Passover meal during the Feast of Unleavened Bread to sing uh, some of the Psalms. They're called Hallel Psalms, which means praise. Uh, Psalm 116, 17, and 18 are some of the popular ones. But after the meal, typically, you would sing Psalm 136. I want to read portions of this to you if I could. Um, Psalm 136 is interesting. You got to read it sometime. It's 26 verses of the story of God saving his people throughout the, throughout the ages. It's 26 verses of the psalmist saying, God's always been with us. But my favorite part of Psalm 136 is that every verse ends with the same phrase. The phrase is, for his steadfast love endures forever. Jesus walked into the darkest night he would ever face 
with these lyrics on his lips. The steadfast love of the Lord remains forever. And I wonder if maybe our, our, our failure in, in pressure points and temptation and pain comes from the fact that we're just singing all the wrong lyrics. And so today, I felt like it was my job to acquaint you with the appropriate lyrics for any pain that you will face. Here's what we're going to do. Both venues. Let's stand to our feet. We're going to have the bands come forward right now. And what I want to do is I want to give you your part. And then we're going to repeat this together because these are the lyrics that we need to have on our lips. This is your part. When I pause, this is what you say. For his steadfast love endures forever. Come on, let's say it together. For his steadfast love endures forever. Come on, it sounds good. Say it again. For his steadfast love endures forever. Okay, I'm going to read a few. And then we're going to make up some of our own on, on, as we go. Listen to this. When I pause, you say your part. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. To him, to him alone who does great wonders. It is he who remembered us in our lowest state. And he rescued us from our foes. He gives food to all flesh. Give thanks to the God of heaven. When I don't know my future. When I don't have this all figured out. Come on. When I'm in pain. Come on. When I can't get out of this temptation. When everybody else deserted me. Listen, worship is a weapon for the war you're walking into. And oftentimes we are completely removed from the strength that we need because we're singing all the wrong lyrics. This is the line of the lyric that you need. I'm telling you, whatever season you're in, whatever pain you're facing, whatever problem you're up against, whatever temptation you are coming up against, I want you to know his steadfast love. How long does it last? forever. He's not left you. He won't leave you. It doesn't matter who comes in and out of your life. His steadfast love remains forever. It's enduring. That's the lyric you need on your lips. Listen, Jesus walked in to the, to the oil press, the place where he would be crushed and begin bleeding out of anguish. And he walked in saying, but his steadfast love endures forever. Uh, man, this is going to be painful. I'm going to deal with things that I've never dealt with. I imagine what Jesus was going through in his mind. But the lyrics on his lips in the garden where his steadfast love endures forever. And he knew the same thing you and I have to rest in no matter what we face. His love never changes. Come on, somebody. Can we thank God for his love?